All of John 17 is a prayer of Christ. He's not talking to his disciples. He is praying apparently in front of his disciples. But it's God the Son praying to God the Father. And we get to look inside his prayer life. We often talk about what would Jesus do? But today, in the next few weeks, we want to look at, at, at the idea of what would Jesus pray? Starting with the first five verses today. Jesus spoke these words, and then he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was." The number one concern on the heart and mind of our Savior was that God the Father would be glorified. I want to look at this concept. This is a word we use all of the time. We use it frequently in the church. We might use it in our own personal lives. And yet, perhaps sometimes it's a a concept that's a little bit slippery. It's a little bit hard to get a hold of. And so what I want to do is is look through some verses that use this word that really help to define it. The word glory literally means opinion. It literally means opinion. And it's pretty much defined by the ways that it's used. It doesn't actually mean good opinion, nor does it mean bad opinion. It means opinion, uh, to, to have a reputation almost, if you will. Let's look at some verses where it's used. Then the devil, taking Jesus up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give to you and their glory. For this has been delivered to me, and I can give it to whomever I wish. What is the glory of a kingdom? Let's be a class today. What's the glory of a kingdom? When, 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 the, when the devil said, look, I'm going to give you not only the kingdom, not only the rulership, but the glory that goes with it. What is the glory of the kingdom? Praise? Praise it, wealth? Reputation? I think it's the, the esteem that goes with being the king. Oh, you're the king. He says, I will give you the glory that goes with it, the opinion that goes with it, as well as the kingdom. Here's another one. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested or demonstrated his glory, and his disciples believed in him. What's the word glory mean here? What did Jesus show them? Power? divinity that's right he he said look i'm not just an average prophet i i'm i'm god and they got to see that they got to see his glory that they got to see what he possessed look here in john 9 so they again called the man who was born blind and he they said to him give god the glory we know this man is a sinner this is when jesus healed a man 
And the Pharisees were upset, and they were trying to get this man to attribute his miracle to somewhere else. And so they said, give God the glory. We know this man is a sinner. What's it mean in that sense to give God the glory? Give him the praise. Give him the honor. That's right. Let's look at one more. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Surely, I say to you, they have their reward. What's that hypocrite looking for from men? Praise. Oh, look at how great you are. Now, obviously, this is used in a negative sense, but it helps us to define the word. To, def- to glorify God is to make him known for who he really is and to give him honor for all that he does for us. To glorify God, to bring honor to God, to, to let people see who he really is. Now, the next question we need to ask in this passage is this. How did Jesus expect to glorify God? Jesus spoke these words, and he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. He was praying that God would do something in him so that he would be able to bring glory to God. The first clue that we get here is this phrase, the hour has come, my hour has come, or the hour has come. It's used numerous times in the, in the, in the scripture, and here's the first time it's used. When they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. You remember this? This is when he turned water into wine, uh, the first miracle that he did in his ministry. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus said, look, I have a ministry to do, and someday people are going to know exactly who I am and what I've done, but now is not the time for that public knowledge to go out. He went on and did the miracle anyway, and his disciples started to know who he was. But the miracle was not uh, made public Several times this phrase is used after people were trying to attack Jesus and to kill him and to get him off the scene. Here's one of them here. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not come. So what was this hour? And here in John 17, Jesus says, the hour has come. And he said that also in John 12, the hour has come. What was this hour? The hour was the events of the arrest, trial, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. These events are commonly referred to by the term the Passion of Christ. Not the Passion of the Christ, that's the title of the movie. And it was taken from this common term that was used, it has been used for years and years. Why is it called the Passion of Christ? Here's why. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, here's what I will say. Let me put it this way. Here's what I'll pray. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. 
Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. When Jesus says, my hour has come, he said, it's the hour when I'm going to be lifted up on the cross. And I'm going to die. And, and Jesus, Jesus looked at it humanly and he said, oh, this is going to be hard. But then he said, I'm here to glorify God. And so he passionately moved toward it. There are notes in the scripture where it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus was not a victim. <laughs> he was the victor. He's the one who resolutely walked toward the cross and what we understand in john 17 is this he walked toward the cross hear me all the way out not primarily to save you your salvation is a byproduct of him glorifying the father he said father Help me as I go through this time so that I might bring glory to you. Now the result of all that he did in, those, in that time of passion was our salvation. Jesus knew what was going to be accomplished and he knew it was going to bring glory to God and he prayed for strength to go through it all the way. Here is why the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ brings glory to God. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there's no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Being justified or made righteous freely by a gift, by grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth, whom God sent out as a propitiation by his blood. That is, the gift of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, satisfied the righteous demand of God for payment for sin. God sent Christ to satisfy his own demand on us, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier. Let me unpack this for you, folks. When God created Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden. And what did he say? Do a whole bunch of things, but don't do this one thing. And what did they do? They did that one thing. They disobeyed. And he had told them, if you do this one thing, if you disobey me, you will die. When the scripture talks about God being just or righteous, what it means is God tells the truth. God says what he means. He means what he says. And he does not change what he said. God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat from that tree, dying you shall die. Now Adam and Eve go and eat from the tree. What's God going to do? Eradicate his creation? 
Because if God is righteous, if God is just, let's put it this way, if God is fair and honest, he has to do what he said he would do. But he doesn't want to show us just justice. Because God is also love. And God wants to preserve and protect and keep his creation, but he cannot live with the sin. And so he created a body for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he, who took on that body. We would call it the birth of Christ. He grew up, and he comes to this moment when he's going to die on the cross, and he says, Father, help me to go through this, because when I go through this, you are going to be just and the justifier. You are going to be shown to be righteous, as in punishing sin, and the person who makes other people righteous, so they don't have to suffer the punishment of sin. God's love and his uh, justice are going to come together. And so that he can both be righteous and loving. And Christ knows this. He knows that when he goes to the cross, the salvation of our souls will be accomplished and the plan of God will be completed in the sense that God can both make us righteous and still maintain his own righteousness. In Hebrews 10, Christ talked about this. He said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. By that will we have been sanctified or set apart to God. We've been made righteous through the offering of the body of Christ once for all, And every priest stands ministering daily and repeatedly, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. Christ came into the world knowing that the cross was his destiny. Now, in the upper room, He prays for God to complete this marvelous plan of salvation. He says, this is why I came, now help me finish. As I talked about this passage being awesome and scary and exciting all at once, there are are things here that we cannot fully figure out with our human mind. Why does God, the Son, need to pray? And say, God, help me glorify you. Doesn't he have all the strength? Doesn't he know exactly what's going to go on? Yes, he does. And yet, in his human nature, he is depending on God the Father. And so he prays, not only here, but many times during his ministry, consistently, regularly. And he says, God, help me to do what you've called me to do, so that you might be shown to be the great God who you are. Jesus was consumed with bringing honor to God. Now, how would Jesus pray if he was in your circumstance today? That's the question I want to ask. 
We could take this, this, this obsession that Christ had with the glory of God and apply it to our, to our activity in life. As in, what am I going to do? How am I going to choose my activities? How am I going to choose my job? And so on. And that would be a great application. But since it's Jesus praying, I want to apply it today to our life of prayer. How do we pray? And I want to look at some examples. Um, Jesus said, you can pray in my name. You can ask whatever you want in my name. And I think this defines what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It's us praying the way Jesus would pray if he were here now. And it's to pray for the things that bring glory to God. So I want to think of uh, several things that we often pray for. And the first one is physical healing. And I want to ask this question, why do we pray for physical healing? Well, If you're real sharp, you're going, well, we pray for healing, so we'll get better. Okay, duh. Do you really need to preach about that? Yeah, I think we do. Because if I understand what Christ is telling me here, there's something bigger at stake in all of life than my experience of life. And it is the glory of God. Let's think about a a famous healing, if you will, of Jesus um, I'm not sure if bringing somebody back from the dead quite qualifies as healing. Maybe we call that the ultimate healing. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not... For the purpose, or not going to result in death, it is going to result in the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. When you get sick, do you stop and say, God wants to glorify himself in my illness? Or do you say, God, I shouldn't have kissed my wife. Got that cold. Probably more likely I shouldn't have kissed my husband or my grandchild or something like that. Do you suppose that when Lazarus was dying, that he and his sister stood around and said, I bet God's going to do something great? Mm -mm. In fact, we hear the tone of them. You know, and later, when Jesus actually comes, the, the sister runs out and says, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. There's clearly inferring, you messed up. And Jesus is just shaking his head. Isn't that, there's a lesson right there, isn't there? We want God to do certain things. How much cooler was it to be raised from the dead than to be healed? That's really cool. If you were Lazarus... Uh, of course, maybe he didn't want to come back from... Uh... But, you know, you walk into town tomorrow and you go, eh, yeah, I had a death experience, not a near-death experience. I mean, or, or if you're the sisters, you're, 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 just, you're going, wow, my brother's been raised from the dead. I mean, what they were praying for was too small. And that's our problem. 
we have very small concerns compared to the glory of God. When God does something to make himself known, it usually gets people's attention. I mean, when Jesus did miracles, they went, wow. I mean, they, and it says some, the word is used a number of times, they were amazed. They were, they were, but all we pray for is little stuff like this. You know, God, I have a cold. Please heal me from my cold. Well, I'm not saying that's a wicked prayer. But is there a greater thing at stake? Do we pray for healing so we will be comfortable? Or we, do we pray for healing so people will see God for who he is? I'm, could, could I be so simplistic as to say, what do you want to accomplish in your life? You know, ease, comfort, simplicity, or making God known. Wow. Now, I hope the lesson isn't lost on you for Jesus to glorify God, for Jesus to do what God set out for him to do to bring the most glory to God involved a cross. And, and so it does for us, right? Not that we save ourselves, but he said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so what that tells me, boy, I hate preaching this, what that tells me is, is that God many times is going to make himself known through difficulty. He's going to do miracles. You know, I, I love to pray for miracles, but the downside is when you're praying for a miracle, it means you need one. Right? Do we pray for healing so we can be comfortable or maybe we pray for healing so we can get back to doing God's work. Perhaps the greatest miracle that God could do would be to help us suffer graciously. So much so that other people around us go, how can you be so peaceful, so calm? So how can you be cheerful when this is going on in your life? Boy, I hope you don't miss those moments. Those are the easiest moments in the world to witness. And I'm telling you, when you witness in those moments, that's when you are actively bringing glory to God. You're saying, you know what? Boy, God's at work. So I can be joyful. I had a fellow in our church in Tuckwilla. used to drive around and pick stuff up from doctor's offices and take it back to the lab. And, and uh, he was a joyful guy. He said, people would ask him, why are you smiling? How can you be happy? <laughs> and he said, well, I got the Lord. He was glorifying God just by being joyful. What a tremendous opportunity we have, but we miss the opportunity because all we can see is, oh, I'm sick. Oh. God says, I've got something bigger for you. What about something that some of you may be thinking about in these tough economic times? Do we pray for a job? Why? 
so we can keep our standard of living? Now, I'm not talking about eating. I mean, staying alive is different than a standard of living. Jesus said, pray for your daily bread. Okay? It's, it's right and righteous to pray for God to provide for your needs. But we, even in that, we have to keep in mind, in the Lord's prayer, or the disciples' prayer, where he said, ask for your daily bread, he started that prayer by saying, hallowed, or glory be to your name, Heavenly Father. Your kingdom come on the earth. Your will be done here. And so even in praying for our daily bread, we ought to say, God, provide for us. Provide for us in a way that we can see you at work. Provide for us so that we can bring honor to you. If there's, if there's some way I can give glory to you as you provide for this, help me to see that. There is a bigger issue at stake than even our eating. It's the glory of God. Maybe God will bring you a layoff so that your godliness can honor him. But when the layoff comes, all we can think of is, oh, I've been laid off. Oh, I've got to hurry, scurry, get another job. We need to just take a step back and say, I wonder what God's doing. What's God doing? What does he want to do? What testimony does he want to give? Here's a common concern that we pray for. A relationship crisis. Could be marriage, could be family, could be parent-child. Could be a boyfriend and a girlfriend. Why do we pray for restoration of a relationship? Well, if it's a marriage, we know that God has certain standards about divorce and marriage, and we don't want to break those standards, and that's a good thing. But oftentimes, when a, when a marriage deteriorates, we pray for restoration, perhaps for many selfish reasons. We don't want to get divorced. We don't want to lose our partner. We don't want to hurt the kids. We don't want to bear the monetary costs. What about the glory of God? Is the glory of God at stake when Christians are considering divorce? And what's more important? God's glory or your comfort? It's not wrong to pray that your marriage stays together. Please, don't, don't get that opinion. I just want to lift your eyes a little today to say there is something bigger. God has said that two believers have the Holy Spirit, the Word, and they can work through their difficulties. And when we divorce, we tell the world that God is not powerful enough to soften a hard heart or cause a sinner to repent or rebuild a righteous union. We need to get our mind around the fact, Christian, that God's honor is at stake in our lives. I want to read a story to, uh, read a story with you on the screen from the Old Testament. I, I love this story of David. Uh, it's the first big episode we see of David, and and he says two or three things that are that just ought to stick in our mind. And and one of them is here today. Let's follow this story. Now the Philistines had gathered their armies together to battle, and they were gathered together at Succoth, which belongs to Judah. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in battle array against the Philistines. Get a mental picture here. Two sides of the church. Philistines, Israel. And when they would come to battle, (laughs) 
when they would come to battle, battle array means like um, the old time, if you see a movie of, of like uh, the old soldiers in England when they had the bows and arrows, and they'd all form a big line. Here's a line of the Philistines, here's a line of Israel. And, you know, and at some point, somebody would say, go, and they'd all mash together and uh, warfare would break loose. Okay? That's what he's talking about. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley in between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. That's about nine feet. I'm six feet tall. That's about two feet. So he would be about this tall to the floor. Okay, He's a big man. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his legs and bronze javelin between his shoulders. The staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. It was a big, big hunk of wood like this. And the iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels. That's about six to eight pounds. It's about the weight of a shot put. Those of you that have held a shot put in your hand, that was the tip of his spear, which means he could chuck that thing like a spear. He was a big, strong man. And then he stood and he cried out to the armies of Israel and he said, Why have you come out to line up for battle? We don't need to have this war. That's what he's saying. Am I not a Philistine and you're the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and they were greatly afraid. So David arose early in the morning. He left the sheep. He's, he, David's not in the army. He's a sheep keeper. He's a teenager. He's, he's a young kid. And he left the sheep and took the things that his dad said, here's some groceries to take to your brothers in the army. He took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. Um, this is great. Uh, this is where cheerleaders started. <laughs> we're going to kill you! We're going to kill you! And they all started chanting. You know, that's what they did. And then at some point they'd get worked up into a fervor and you know, actually have some warfare, but that's what they were doing. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper and ran to the army, and he came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion. You know, David looked over and he went, Whoa, dude, that's a big guy. Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words. In other words, he said the same thing he'd been saying day by day. And David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him. They were dreadfully afraid. They ran with their tails between their legs. So the men of Israel said to David, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches and give him his daughter and give him his father's house and exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him and said, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The reason David became courageous is because he saw what was at stake 
And it wasn't about personal slavery, translate that my discomfort at having to serve some guy down the street. He said, this guy has defied God. And the people answered him in this manner saying, so shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, the oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart. For you have come down to see the battle. You're just a looky-loo. You're just a teenager looking for some entertainment on Friday night. And David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause David looked at this different than everybody in Israel. I mean, Saul was the anointed king from God. He at least should have said, you know what? We're fighting for God. They're fighting for some, for some dagon, some idol that they worship. God's on our side. Let's fall down on our knees before God. Let's ask for God's help to, to demonstrate his glory. And when he gives us the signal, we'll get up and go fight these guys because God is at stake here. Nobody saw that except David. David came down and he said, there is a reason to get up and do something, and the reason is the glory of God, the honor of God. And I want to challenge you with that today in your prayer life to say, what are you praying for? There is something big out there and it's the glory of God. God wants to do things in our lives, but not for our own comfort. Neither our salvation nor our lives after salvation are intended to be our own possession, lived for our own pleasure. Our Creator God intends for us to think His way, believe on Him, act in ways that honor Him, and pray for things that bring Him glory. The glory of God is the cause for which we should get most excited. We need to want God to be seen as powerful. Are you asking God to make your family righteous so He will be seen as the life transformer? Are you asking God to provide for your daily bread so He will be seen as your great provider? Are you asking God to save souls through your witness so He will be seen as the Savior of the world? That's the great cause that we have to get excited about. I've just finished reading this book. This copy's mine. There's one right over there about that high in the library that you could check out. And I would, if you haven't been reading any good Christian books lately, this is a great one. It will challenge your heart. Um, this husband and wife were taken hostage by Muslim... Uh, extremist in the Philippines back in 2001, about six months before uh, 9-11. And uh, they were veteran missionaries, been in the Philippines 15 years, and they, they just happened to be vac vacationing at a place where Westerners vacation. And so, you know, they, they, the Abu Sayyaf swept in and took a bunch of people hostage, including them. Had nothing to do personally with them, if you will. And uh, they were hostages for a year. They were trudging through the Philippine jungle with the Abu Sayyaf as they kept running from the Philippine army for a year. Uh, they had poor treatment. They were not abused as in, uh, you know, uh, 
beaten or things like that, but you know, poor food and poor physical conditions and poor sleeping conditions and bugs and rain and, and you just, you know, I mean, unbelievable things, on and on and on and on and on. And you can see I'm, I'm almost to the end of that part of the story. And uh, Martin is his name and Gracia is her name. And uh, Martin said, I really don't know why this has happened to us. I've been thinking a lot lately about Psalm 100. And, and let me preface it also by saying that they prayed together regularly. When, when, when somebody sent a letter with portions of the Scripture, they read the Scripture and they kept them. They wrote down things they remembered. They, they cultivated their spiritual life and they worked through a series of challenges. But listen to this one. I don't know why this has happened to us. I've been thinking a lot lately about Psalm 100, what it says about serving the Lord with gladness. This may not seem much like serving the Lord, being a hostage, but that's what we're doing, you know? We may not leave this jungle alive, but we can leave this world serving the Lord with gladness. We can come before His presence with singing. We prayed together then, something we often did. There was nothing else to do. We were totally dependent on the Lord. We thank the Lord for bringing us this far safely. And of course, we begged him to get us home and back to our kids. We told him we wanted to keep serving him with gladness. And within minutes, Martin was dead. An accidental death by the Philippine army. And uh, Gracia was wounded. And uh, she was evacuated and lived to write this book. I don't know if I want the glory of God that much. I can't stand here and say, oh, yes, if God called. You know. God seems to give us strength day by day for whatever he calls us to. What he's calling us to today is to get our mind up on his glory. And so as we pray and as we think about our lives, we stop and say, what is the cause? What is the glory of God that I need to be concerned about and praying about and striving for? Because a few moments from now might be my last moment. They got it right, and not without struggle. Pray with me. Oh God, we are self-centered. We want what we want, when we want it, for our own comfort and joy. Help us to die to self and live for you in our desires and concerns which become our prayers. Help us do all for your glory. I pray in Christ's name, amen.